This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is happening, gang? We have got a big one for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. In today's episode, we begin our two-part look at one of the most consequential off-seasons in the history of the National Football League that involves so many teams in the league. I'm talking about 98 going into the 99 season, the end of Peyton Manning's first year in Indianapolis, Bill's first year in Indianapolis. And we look at the decision that Bill faced in terms of building out the roster, but most importantly, the decision decision between two future Hall of Fame running backs and a Heisman Trophy winning running back. And in this first part, we look at kind of the end of the 98th season, moving into free agency and all the decisions that Bill faced in terms of building out the roster. But then we take a very deep, in-depth look at Marshall Falk, what it meant to have kept Marshall, what it meant to have moved on from Marshall, the player, the contract. And we get a unique take this week in that we have Rick the agent and Bill the general manager. And I think this has got to be one of the first times ever, we actually get to hear all the permutations of what it's like to renegotiate a deal in the NFL. So sit back, relax, get ready. This is a fun one. This is part one of our look at the 1999 NFL offseason and the decision between two future Hall of Fame running backs and one Heisman Trophy winning running back. Enjoy. We are live, and I just got an alert on my phone. There is a new Monday Night Football announce booth. It's Steve Levy, Lou Riddick, and Brian Greasy. So lots of change in the football world this a week. Well, hey, this is a fun episode today. We're going to dive into something that I've wanted to talk about, and I think a lot of you guys on social media want to talk about. Uh, We're going to spend the next two weeks kind of looking at the 1999 NFL Draft and the story of what I like to call two gold jackets and a Heisman trophy. Um, so Bill, Rick, are you guys ready for a fun one today? All set to go, Scott. We are on board. Yep. Take us away, Scott. Here we go. All right. Well, in this first part, we're going to spend most of this first episode kind of looking at the offseason in 1998 and a certain future Hall of Fame and current Hall of Fame running back. And then the follow up will kind of dive fully into the draft. But our story this week begins at a simpler time. The the Colts 1998 season uh, would end uh, in a little bit of a tough situation with a loss to the Carolina Panthers in the RCA Dome on December 27th, 1998. So, Bill, let me get the fan question out of the way. Is losing to a team you had put together harder, easier, or is the same as losing to anybody else? Same as losing to anyone else. Um, the, uh, you know, obviously a lot of friends there, uh, but, uh, you know, they wish me well and I wish them well. And it was just another game, really. And as a result, you know, we ended up uh, – three and 13 and uh, put ourselves <laughs> in position to have another premier draft choice. That was not our <laughs> aim, but that's the way it worked out. 
All right. Well, we're going to move to a simpler time in the world. Uh, we're going to go to the off season of 1998, headed into 1999. It was your first season with the Colts. And your first season with the Colts would end with a loss to, of all teams, the Carolina Panthers and the RCA Dome on December 27th, 1998. Let me get the fan question in me out of the way. Is losing to a team you have put together harder, easier, or the same as losing to anybody else? No, it's the same. Um, you know, your your focus is on whoever you're working for at the time. It's always nice to see those people, and 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 we wished each other well. You know, a lot of friends on both sides. Uh, but uh, you know, other than that, just another football game and a disappointing season. We hope to do better, but uh, uh, the die is then cast for a, a high draft pick. And so you get on with the business of trying to make the team better. So in, we, you touched on it a little bit. In terms of uh, ending the season, how did you feel the first season went? Obviously, it didn't necessarily go as you had expected it, but were, did you see glimmers? What was kind of your assessment at the end of that first season of the team? Well, no season ever goes as you expect it to. Uh, it, it's, uh, that's why I get so annoyed with expectations at this time of the year. Uh, it really starting with the draft and then heading in, into the first month of the regular season when a dose of reality sets in. But the, the bottom line is that it never goes the way you expect it to. And in this particular case, um, I, I came into the season thinking that we would have a pretty good defense and would be a, a very big work in progress offensively um, because – Peyton was brand new. Um, that was true. Um, he he threw 28 interceptions. Uh, and that's the most he's ever thrown in his career. And But the good news on that side of the ball was that, uh, you know, he and Marvin were developing chemistry together. Uh, Kenny Dilger was a, really a, a good tight end. Uh, we had some pretty good offensive linemen. Howard Mudd. God rest his soul, who passed away last week, uh, was uh, was starting to mold that into a top-flight group, but I felt good about that. Felt really good about the offensive coaching staff, Bruce Aarons, Tom Moore. Those are household names now. They weren't then. Uh, and, and I was really disappointed the way the defense had performed, and I felt we needed to do a lot more there to get to get us to the point where we could – we could really be a contender. So, uh, Bill, when when we first went to Indy, you know, you had you had uh, made the affirmative decision that uh, you couldn't build out defense and offense at the same time. Peyton was available, uh, as as you used to say to me, you know, if we if we lose the game, you know, uh, thirty eight to twenty five, it will be okay. We but we can't afford to lose seventeen to nothing uh, each week. So. From that standpoint, in terms of evalu- evaluating the offense, you, you you still had the, obviously the, the knowledge that Peyton was going to grow, but go a little bit more into, if you would, the offense in terms of uh, actually fulfilling what you expected to fulfill for a first year team that you were putting together like that. Well, we 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 had a we had a pretty good group there. We, Jerome Payton was playing pretty well. He was a rookie. Um, Tarek Glenn. Uh, had been drafted by the previous regime, and Howard was 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 getting him 
to the point where you could see that it, that he was really going to be good. Steve McKinney was an outstanding guard. Jay Lewenberg, uh, decent center. Tony Mandarich was on the, the back end of his career for sure and was, was struggling with injuries. But, man, what a warrior he was. Uh, he, he was a, not only a pleasant surprise, but a, but a guy that uh, uh, I really have to this day a great deal of respect for. He's a one tough hombre. <laughs> um, and Adam Meadows was a guy that uh, we, we, we weren't sure he was a right tackle, but we were pretty sure that he was going to play somewhere for us. So... And, and I had the utmost uh, respect for and confidence in Howard. I knew he'd get that right. So all, all we needed to hear from Howard was, here's the way we're going to line him up and here's what we need. And, and, and that we'd go down that road. Marvin Harrison was clearly among the, the best receivers in the league. He was coming out in the draft and he didn't disappoint here. Um, Marshall Falk was a really present pleasant surprise because he fits so well into the offense and 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 he he did such a tremendous job catching the ball and Ken Dilger and Marcus Pollard were really two very good tight ends so uh that that was a group that with the addition of Peyton and and the fact that over the past or the last four games of the season Peyton really the light went on, and be, he he really began to click. Um, I, I felt good about the offense, and, and I thought that they had achieved actually achieved more than I thought that they would at the outset. And I, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. We were in Baltimore. Uh, let me just get the the exact date here. Uh, some sometime late in the season, it was uh, it was on the uh, 29th of November. So, entering the last week of the season, and we got a chance to pull the game out on the last play of the game. Uh, miraculous recovery, two minute drive down the field, and Marvin. We had a play called from Marvin, and he and Peyton together misread the coverage. Peyton thought the coverage was one thing. Marvin thought it was another. He adjusted the route. Peyton threw the ball in the wrong area in completion. So after the game and after Coach Mora had spoken, I grabbed both Peyton and Marvin and said, come on, let's." we went into a corner of the equipment room, and I said, listen, I don't want you to hang your heads, and I don't want you to be upset. After a, 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 a one off-season program, which will begin in March, this will never happen again. You just need to get on the same page, and, and you're both great workers. I'm not even worried about this. Put it out of your mind. It'll never happen again, and we're going to throw 100 of those before your careers are over. I don't know if we got quite to 100, but it was close. So the, 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 I was really upbeat about where we were going offensively. Um, defensively was another story. We, we, we didn't have – the kind of personnel that we needed to to play the defense that we were playing. Uh, we didn't have a, a lot of top flight personnel to begin with. And and I thought, you know, there was a there was a real need to, to upgrade there. But whether you could do it or not and still keep the offense functioning at a high level 
And and you know when you're three and thirteen, you got to take the best players. You can't you can't earmark players. So, um, you know, we we just needed to get the defense better in order for us to be a contender. So we invested that off season a, a good bit in in trying to get the defense better. But I was I was real positive about the offense. I thought they they exceeded expectations, and and you know worried about getting the defense to the point where we could be competitive because you're not going to be competitive as a uh, as a as a football team you know on the field you'll be you'll make a lot of noise in the media if you have a good offense but you won't be competitive on the field unless you have a top flight defense Bill, to that end, in, in free agency and kind of heading into that offseason, you went very heavy in terms of the defensive side of the ball in free agency. You got Cornelius Bennett, who you'd obviously had in Buffalo. You added two Chads, Chad Cota, who was a key piece for you in Carolina, and Chad Bratsky. We've talked a little bit about Cornelius in a future in a pre, pre, pre previous show. Can you talk a little bit about Chad Bratsky, what he brought to the table, and how important he was in those early days with the Colts in generating a pass rush? Well, number one, he was a tremendous worker. Now, there were many people in the media who said, well, he racked up a lot of sack totals in New York because he was opposite Michael Strahan. Um, and, and it's true that Chad was more of a, a, work, a worker bee than he was a natural pass-rushing athlete. Um, but... The, the, the worker bee was good enough for us, that's for sure, in a lot of respects, because it, it he brought with him toughness, he brought with him a winning mentality, he brought with him a work ethic that was second to none, and uh, and he he got a big free agent contract, and there were a lot of people that complained about that, but that's that's life, and and he came in and, and did what we expected him to do. We immediately became a better pass rushing team, and uh, and he and Cornelius together gave us two outside rushers, which foreshadowed Freeney and Mathis in the years to come. They were both bigger versions of Freeney and Mathis because Vic Fangio, then our coordinator, and Jim Moore, quite honestly, didn't didn't really like the smaller, faster guys, but that. There's no question the two of them together gave us a, a, a much, much better pass rush than we had. Well, in terms of fast guys, you, you definitely had one. And the real headline-grabbing story of that NFL offseason involved a future Hall of Fame running back, Marshall Falk. But before we get into talking about Marshall Falk and how that would play out in that offseason before the 99 season – we got into a little bit in the last show in terms of key measurables for quarterbacks and minimum thresholds and desirable numbers for playing QB in the National Football League. Could we dive a little bit into your take on those for running backs? Are there, did you have similar kinds of ideas and numbers around that for running backs? Before you get into that, let me ask you another question relating to the last show. You previously said that you felt an argument could be certainly made that quarterback is the most important position uh, in any team sport. Is it also fair to say that running back at the NFL level may be the most physically demanding and punishing sport, uh, position in all of team sports? If you would take that into account when you answer Scott's question, please. Well, it's probably true on offense, certainly. 
there, there are you know the defensive line is 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 really a hard position to play, and and linebackers on defense, but they get caught in all kinds of awkward situations. So I wouldn't say running back is the most physically punishing position, but it's but it's one of them, and it's and it is the most physically punishing position on 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 offense. Um, our deal with the, with with running backs is is really simple, as was most of our uh, most of our personnel uh, metrics and 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 guidelines. Um, five ten, two fifteen was the minimum. You'd like him in the two eighteen to two twenty range. Uh, we, you know, Thurman Thomas was around five nine. Guys that can play at five eight, but they they better be very compact. Um, the faster, the better. Uh, again, four five two, four five three. That's the outside number. Anything more than that, you're you're probably not getting a guy who can who can change games, unless he happens to be. The Nigerian nightmare, you know, who can bang up in there and and just fold people up. But that's a, an entirely different perspective, anyway, in terms of how you fit him in the offense. Um, and and he has to have three basic skills. He's got to be a, or four actually. He's got to be able to accelerate in the hole, in the hole, at the line of scrimmage from the time. The quarterback hands him the ball to the time he gets to the linebacker level. He has to be able to accelerate. accelerate. Think about a car going from zero to 60. That's what he has to do. He has to go from zero to 60 in the space of about three yards, three to four yards. And if he doesn't have that, he's, he can have all the other things and he'll just be an average NFL back. Um, he won't change games. Uh, secondly, he has to have vision and avoid. The two go together. Um, I've been around backs that <clears throat> had really good avoid, but they couldn't. They didn't have any vision, so they'd still run into people. Uh, they wouldn't take head-on shots, but they they wouldn't they wouldn't come clean either. So they have to have two vision plus avoid, and avoid is the single biggest. Um, reason that backs become great. Uh, number one, you don't want them taking hits if they can avoid it. And number two, if, if, if they've got the ability to shake and bake and avoid tacklers, they're always going to get additional yardage. Uh, yak, yards after contact. Because people who can avoid don't take hard, full-on flush contact. Uh, and then, and then, Finally, they, they got to be able to catch the ball because if you can't catch the ball, you're useless in the passing game. They also have to be able to block in the passing game. But if a player is, is too small to block, as was Marshall Falk, and, and, and as dangerous as Marshall was, you don't use him to block. You just keep an extra tight end in to block him, to block, that's all. And, and and put him because he's a mismatch for everybody every linebacker in the passing game, even nickel and dimebacks. So 
pass catching ability is a and the ability to get open is a, is an absolute must. Um, and so, if you don't have any one of those things, um, you, you're really looking at a guy who's never going to take over games and never going to break games open. You might have a guy who you know who, who could gain in a 16 game season a thousand yards, which by the way is a phony metric. Um, that's less than 80 yards a game, and, and you know that's that's not that's probably uh, just on the barely good enough area. But the fact of the matter is that if you if you if you want a guy who who breaks games open. Uh, you got to have all of those talents now. Um, the 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 uh, <laughs> drawing a blank on the other guy's name. Dallas is running back that from Florida that holds the broke Walter's rushing record. Uh, Emmett Smith, yeah, Emmett Smith was not the fastest guy in the world, but he did have great acceleration in the hole. He didn't he didn't run a you know a sub four four forty. But he had great acceleration in the hole and great balance. He was because he could avoid and take hits and bounce off, and 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 gain extra yardage. So, uh, you know those those talents, if you will, not just measurables, but talents, are the key to the running back position. In terms of vision and avoid, Bill, how do you – are there – obviously there's probably things you can see on tape, but as you go through the scouting process, are there things that you look for in drills or even – I know we've talked about certain things at the Combine or just obviously for TV, but are there certain things that you can sort of tell outside of tape by sort of how you would measure vision and avoid? Yeah, well, let, let, let me state it this way. Vision plus avoid equals balance. Coach Levy used to say that balance was the was the most important thing a back had the ability to take a hit and keep on keep on running, uh, but but vision and avoid, avoid equals balance, and yes you can see it with the naked eye you can also measure it, uh, in it, it's it's less a measurement I mean less a vision measurement tool than it is uh, a a. a an avoid tool, but if you use the triangle drill, the three cone drill, uh, if you're not sub seven in that, they, they'll again, if you're not, unless you're a big blaster, you're probably not going to be anything but a journeyman back in the NFL. The other measurement you use is as a college player. Uh, I think I may have said this on the show before. If a college back doesn't average five yards or more per carry, be skeptical. And and we had a rule. If a guy wasn't 4.5 a carry in college, he's going to have a hard time getting on the board. And at 4.6 or 4.7, we're skeptical. Let's go back and look at the film and find out why that is. 5.0 is the, is the dividing line. And so if he, if he doesn't gain five yards, a carry that you're not as a as a collegian, you're probably not going to be excited about. Bill, is that because at that level, because uh, obviously five yards is a significant average, uh, that the guys you're looking for are actually just also superior talent to the to the guys who are on the field with them, so that they can, yeah, of course. And that and then what becomes superior in college is the threshold in the NFL. 
Yeah, that's correct. The, the, the difference, most, this is a good point you make. Most fans recognize, because they've heard it said a lot, that the jump and the, and the talent differential between college basketball and professional basketball, and certainly college baseball and professional baseball, is a gulf that's as wide as the Atlantic Ocean. Because college football gets so much hype on television and in the media, they tend to think and are encouraged to think by the draft Knicks that the gulf between uh, college football and professional football is smaller than the other two sports I mentioned, baseball and basketball. In fact, the gulf is bigger. It's as big as the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans combined. <laughs> because, and here's the reason. Football is a collision sport. Baseball is almost a non-contact sport. Uh, basketball, there's contact at the professional level, but there are no collisions. In football, there are collisions. So you come in as a 21 or 22-year-old used to dominating at every level you've played, and now you're playing against 26- and 27- and 28-year-old men who are every bit as good the athlete you are and three times as experienced and mature. So that gulf is tremendous. In addition, football is in an X's and O's game. It's, a, it's the ultimate team game. It's 11 people against 11 people, highly choreographed and and professional defense and professional skills are way 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 ahead of what the colleges teach so and and for those that don't believe me let's see how many rookies make an impact this year when they haven't had mini camp off-season programs rookie camp and four preseason games let's let's hope there's one in Washington <laughs> that plays defensive end well, let, let, let's, let's, let's hope there is a this year. <laughs> yes, but if there is, let's hope there's one. But You just gave me another, uh, another uh, tip here. Uh, Darius Geis, unfortunately, ran into a terrible off-field uh, incident, which you know, may or may not have a major impact on his career. But he was a really good back at, at, um, at uh, LSU. Uh, but his the, the one deficiency was a void, and it, not that it was bad, but it wasn't outstanding, and it needs to be outstanding in the National Football League. And as a result, he gets a lot of nicks and injuries. It's true. He took a lot of took a lot of hits. Well, one running back who did have a north of five uh, yards per carry average in college. In fact, it was six yards per carry average. Was Marshall Falk? He was drafted just to refresh everybody. He was drafted second uh, overall in the 1994 draft out of San Diego State. He had spent his first four seasons in the league with the Colts, impressing up, uh, racking up impressive totals. Prior to your arrival, what was your sense of Marshall the player? Uh, loved him. Uh, it's, you know, amazing in that he was, he was small for the position, but tremendous natural instincts, tremendous avoid, tremendous vision, tremendous acceleration in the hole, great hands. Uh, you know, just uh, deserving of the pick without question.
So, Bill, was when you when you were, we were going there to, to Indy that, that first year, uh, knowing what you knew and having a, a player of that really remarkable capability. Initially, did you see him as one of the constants, one of the true building blocks of, around which you could build what would become the cold offense? Well, there, it, the answer was yes and no. Uh, the minute I got there, Jim Hersey made me aware that there was a contract impediment. Um, Jim had just taken the team over from his from his late father, and there had been a protracted court fight between Jim and his mother and Mr. Ursay's senior's second wife. And so during that court fight, uh, there was effectively, uh, uh, Bill Tobin was running the personnel side, but the contract side was being run by a lawyer who had been a longtime lawyer for the club and for, uh, for uh, Mr. Ursay Sr. And, and, and that individual, you know, it, to, to say he was tight-fisted is, a, is an understatement. Um, <laughs> That's, we can, I, can, I can speak to that. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not sure he really I, – I know he didn't value players, so I, let's leave it at that. He didn't, he didn't know players and didn't value them. Uh, I don't want to ascribe motives to him that, you know, that, I, don't, uh, that I don't have first-hand knowledge of. But Marshall's contract was done in a way that it was essentially an eight-year contract which was unrenewable by the club. In other words, if, if, we, if, if the club attempted to, to renegotiate that contract anywhere during that eight years, it would incur an incredibly large salary cap hit. And, and so Jim made me aware of it. I do my own due diligence. I checked with management's council, and, and they said, yeah, you know, this is the way we read it. It's strange. It's not normal, but this is the way we read it. And obviously, somebody's going to grieve it somewhere along the line. So we were stuck. And Marshall had clearly outperformed his rookie contract and was now approaching what should have been free agency, but he didn't have it because of the contract. And his agent, um, a man named Rocky Arsenal, was was really polite. You know, he was he was he he would he was easy to deal with. He he said, "Look, I know this isn't your fault, and I know from your track record you'd like to do something, but I I just can't figure out what we can do without having you incur that 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 penalty." So we were in a bind, and we and we we were worried about whether or not. You know, forget about being fair to Marshall. You know, would he would he hold out? Would he not? Who knows? I mean, that you don't know when a guy is being treated unfairly, and that's essentially what that contract had done. Now you can make the argument that he shouldn't have signed it, but uh, you know, bottom line was it was uh, it was an untenable situation. So um, we thought about. You know, what, 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 if he was traded, there was no prohibition to redoing the contract. So 
what if we what if we were to trade him? And so that was the thinking in terms of was he a long term guy? Doubtful because the, the contract was a was a an impediment. In addition, he was on the small side and 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 you wouldn't want him to block. He was too valuable in a passing game. Uh, but if you asked him to block, now you were, you know, you're putting him in a position where he just couldn't perform at a high level. He was perfectly willing. He was a very tough guy, but you you couldn't you couldn't ask him to block. And and in a perfect world, you 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 want the back to be big enough to block in 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 the concepts of Tom's offense and what Howard wanted to do with protections. You'd want the guy to be a blocker, which Marshall was not. On the other hand, he was a phenomenal receiver and and magic with the ball in his hands, so you find a way to get the ball in his hands. But uh, th- that was the the one drawback. So um, we, we said at the outset of that 98 season, let's see how he does. Let's – you know, brainstorm, see what we might be able to do about the con- about the contract, but we were skeptical about that. And and then, you know, let, let's see where we take it from there. So he had a great year, had a tremendous year, and uh, and and deservedly so. I mean, he was he was our only All Pro that year, Pro Bowler, I should say. And uh, so at the end of the year, we said, let's see what we can do about. Uh, drumming up a trade, and then we can we'll, we'll either get a back back, or we'll use the currency that we we get in the, in the draft to uh, to take a back. So uh, before we move to the to this you know decision where you kind of had to do that, uh, like a uh, have you talk a little bit more about a few areas with Marshall, um, aside from the uh, talents that you described, as well as the deficiency. Um, how was he, um, as a person, how was he as a teammate, you know, a locker room guy and so on? I didn't have any problems, uh, with him. Um, he, the, the offensive backfield coach would, would, uh, you know, give him time off, uh, from time to time. Uh, I was used to that. Thurman Thomas wouldn't practice, for example, on, on Wednesday and Thursday from about midseason on. Marv was very conscious of, of, of getting him rest. And, you know, somebody's always going to bellyache about that. But, hey, the guy's there on Sunday, right? That's, that's all that counts in the end. And, and Marshall was not – I mean, he wasn't the first guy on the field and the last guy to leave. But, uh, you know – no complaints on that score either. As far as I know, he was a good teammate and, and a good guy. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, he wasn't around all the time in the off season, but he, he didn't need to be. Uh, I think New Orleans was his home. So, uh, you know, he'd go back there or he'd go to San Diego, wherever, and play a lot of golf. <laughs> but he was ready to go on, <laughs> on day one. Right. <laughs> That's all you care about. Now, um, we talked about how, you know, what, what he could do in the offense and so on with a player that has that, that talent level, that hall of fame talent level and the things he does well. Um, talk about the sort of the, 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 the issue you face with then, and you're running a certain, a certain offensive scheme. Um, when you get a talent like that, is it, do you think 
it's incumbent upon the team to, if not change, at least tweak their scheme to fit the guy, or does the guy always have to fit the scheme? No, if you have a talent like Marshall, you you find ways to get get the ball in his hand. You know, you, you and and if it means playing with two tight ends because you have to you have to be in a position where you're you're using one of those tight ends to to pass protect, so be it. You you do what you have to do. It's foolish to have a, a talent like that and waste it. That's absurd. That's what the Lions did. I can't remember the name of the coach right now, but he was a he was a, an aficionado, aficionado of the uh, of the run and shoot. Uh, they said Barry Sanders wasn't good enough to play because he he, could, he was not big enough to block. You know, come on, that's insanity. <laughs> Barry Sanders had to fit the scheme. You know, come on. So, bottom line. If you have a great player, you find ways to get him the ball. And and if you have to adjust in certain areas, you do. And, and you know, there'll be times during a game where you, you might not be able to pick up a certain blitz because the back would theoretically have to do it and you're releasing the back. Have the quarterback get the ball out of his hands quicker. That's all, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and people will bellyache about it and, and and some guru will say, well, you know, Marshall Falk doesn't block well enough. No, he doesn't. So what? How do you like it when he crosses the goal line? <laughs> <laughs> Dick Vermeil did okay with him, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that worked that worked out. It still counts six points even if he can't block. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, obviously you had this contract issue, but in some ways the contract was very team friendly. He was locked into it. At any point in the process, did you think, okay, this is the deal. Unfortunately, you signed it. We have a player of this talent at a number that at the time was somewhat friendly to you guys from a cap perspective. Did it factor into your thought process to say, hey, this kind of is what it is. Let's keep Marshall here. Let's grow the offense kind of situation. Or did it seem obvious like, hey, we've got to, we've got to move on from this. We've got to trade him. This is going to be an untenable situation. He's going to hold out. Yeah, that, that the latter was the case. The latter was the case. And, and, and when you're, you're unwilling to do something for a player who's clearly earned that right, now you're affecting the locker room. And there'd been too much of that in the Colts' history. This very same lawyer, for example, uh, when Ted Marchabroda was the head coach, they had a fullback by the name of McMillan, who was a really a tough, hard-nosed guy, good player, and a guy that everybody respected. And he was uh, terribly injured in a car crash in the offseason um, uh, by hit by a drunken driver, absolutely no fault of his own, and was going to be on the uh, the injured list and and probably not play that whole year, and so um, Jim Irsay called me and said, it's "Just you know, what do you think about this? Should we pay the guy?" I said, "Absolutely, absolutely." It's 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 not going to break anybody in the National Football League to put him on the 
non-football injury list or the, or the physically unable to perform list and, and, and pay him. You could put him on the non-football injury list and not pay him. But all you're doing is, is, is telling the locker room, we don't care about what you do for us. It's, it's about money. And, uh, and Jim agreed, but, uh, the lawyer that I referred to carried the day and, uh, and, all of a sudden, you know, word was all around the league. Players would say, hey, Indianapolis is not a good place to go. Not because of Jim Irsay, by the way. Not at all. But <laughs> because of the the way this lawyer uh, conducted business with player contracts. And and so the the it's those kinds of things that disrupt the locker room. You know, pe- players want to be treated fairly. They... It's one thing, you know, I got very annoyed with agents who would hold their players out uh, for no reason at all, just to just to be disruptive. And I treated them harshly. I treated the agents harshly. I never treated the player harshly, but I treated the agents harshly. But when a player performs, the, the players know. The players know. The reverse of that is when you, you bring a, a big – free agent onto your team and pay him a lot of money. And he's not as good as the guy that's in the locker room that's playing that's not being paid. I got roasted by the by the columnist in Indianapolis because I would never be aggressive in the free agent market. Polian is, hates free agency. He won't spend any money, blah, blah, blah. And my response would be, we re-signed Marvin. We re-signed Reggie. We re-signed Peyton. We re-signed Edgerin. They're all free agents, by the way. That's number one. And number two, am I supposed to bring in a guy who's not as good as Reggie Wayne and, and pay him and then not pay Reggie Wayne? That's lunacy. Right. So, right. you know, it, it, again, media's job is to stir stuff up and be controversial, and I get all of that. But the fact of the matter is that – the bottom line is that that financial chemistry works both ways in the locker room. And as long as you treat people fairly, the, the players, by and large, will say, OK, it's a business, but they treat us fairly. So, Bill, um, looking at the idea of you know, you know, a guy's on a, as a multi-year contract and there's still a few years left, um, in terms of just the idea of, from management standpoint, of renegotiating while there are still multiple years on the table, uh, did you find that uh, disruptive? Uh, was it was it only in cases like this where it was clearly egregious in terms of what he was making, what he could be making, were he able to go in the open market? What was your feeling about a deal's a deal? Uh, you agree to it. We're, we're living up to our end of the deal. Uh, you live up to your end of the deal. Well, that by and large was my philosophy. And, and, and we did not try to sign people early. Um, Joe Banner, who was running the Philadelphia Eagles, made a point of trying to get guys who performed well in their first and second years redone out past six and seven years, feeling that he would get a bargain in the future years because 
the guy was getting redone early and getting money in his pocket early. Money now, of course, that's important to everyone in life. And our feeling was just the opposite. We said, let's let's get four years of of tape on this guy. Let's know who he really is and know where he fits in our scheme of things. And then we'll then, you know, it, it may cost us a little bit more on the uh, on the uh, uh, open market. Uh, but we'll, we'll for sure know what we're going to get. So. There was a lot of uh, uh, industry uh, media, not sports media, but, you know, people who follow contracts and things like that. Uh, talk about who was right. And uh, and so after about 10 years in or eight years in, we did a study and it turned out that the hit rate was slightly in our favor, but not enough to say that Joe was wrong and certainly not enough to say that we were wrong. So it, it was essentially a wash. Um the money that we saved by not signing up players who didn't pan out, we ended up paying to Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne and Edger and James. So it really was a wash. Um, interesting, but, uh, you know, two different ways of skinning the cat. and the, the, It just proves that there are many different ways of skinning the same cat. Well, I mean, we kind of have an interesting thing because we, we've sort of gotten a – the fun thing about the podcast is since we have a GM and an agent, you know, we kind of got a GM's perspective and an executive's exp- perspective on renegotiating. Rick, from an agent's perspective, could you walk through kind of the logic in terms of renegotiating from a player standpoint, when it's appropriate to do it, how you handle it, and how that side works from an agent and a player side? Yeah, absolutely. So l- let me tell you what I, I – always said to even uh, the guys that I was uh, recruiting to be my clients when I explained to them how things worked in the National Football League. Uh, I explained that in most of life, uh, the, the way it works is a contract is a mutual contract that's a bilateral exchange. I, give, I mow your lawn, you pay me $5. I do this, you do that. And if I'm performing... Uh, you got to do what you got to do. You got to pay me. Well, in the National Football League, only a tiny, tiny percentage of contracts are skill guaranteed. Now, in the media, when they talk about this, they act like guaranteeing the contract is this extraordinary thing. But, but that's what everybody gets when you sign a contract. I, you know, you hire me to build your house. If I build your house, you have to pay me. So what I would say to players was, and the truth is, is that renegotiation is a relative thing. The team in my mind, and especially in those days, was renegotiating every day during the season, during the offseason, because if they decided that the player was living up to or exceeding the value they were paying, they kept him. But any day of the year, whenever they wanted to – now, some of this has changed over the years where collective bargaining protects them and, and so on and so forth. But, it, but back then, it was clear that any time the team wanted the contract to be over, 
they could have the contract be over. So if a player uh, had the capacity, the leverage to uh, rene- to quote unquote renegotiate because he had so outperformed the contract that the team would want to do the Joe Banner thing of keeping him, I felt that it was com- completely justified uh, not only from a, 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 a logic standpoint, but from a moral standpoint uh, as well. Now, that said, I think there is a difference between doing that uh, where, where you and the GM, especially a GM like Bill Polian, n- knows this and holding out or doing something like that that's detrimental to the team. So my my uh, philosophy was it, it's not wrong to ask for that. Uh, you try and do it in a way that is that is uh, uh, positive for both sides. But there's certainly nothing wrong in my mind with renegotiating a contract if you've earned it. Okay, here's the GM's point of view. Uh, First of all, every year when I address the team at the start of uh, training camp uh, and mini camp as well, I would say the following. Um, Your agent uh, is here to negotiate uh, your contract with me or my designee. Um, and so if he wants to call me or my designee about an issue that has to do with your contract, I'm happy to take the call. If it's about renegotiation, it's probably going to be a short call because the answer is going to be no. But uh, the bottom line is I'm happy to take the call. If it's about anything else... If it's about playing time, if it's about your unhappiness with your position coach, if it's about how is he doing compared to so-and-so, I won't take the call. That's not his job. And if I want to know how he's doing, I'll ask his position coach or I'll ask the head coach. I'm not going to ask your agent. And so your agent doesn't get free tickets to the game. If you want to give him your tickets, that's your prerogative. Um, He doesn't get to come in the locker room anytime ever under any circumstance. Um, He doesn't get to come to the facility without our prior approval, which approval will almost never be granted unless he's here to talk to me. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and if he decides to make statements to the paper, that's his prerogative. But uh, if he wants to talk to the paper, then he doesn't need to be talking to me. See if the paper will uh, give you a new contract. Um, <laughs> so that that was that was the tenor we set. Now, in the early going, we had to put our foot down and and many times, not many, a few times go to a player and say, uh, your agent is not getting in the press box and he's not, they'd call an agent's, uh, and, and Rick's no different. You know, it's like the only good lawyer is my lawyer. Every agent is looking out for his contract and, and they don't take no for an answer from anyone. So 
they would call a PR department and say, uh, I need to have uh, two passes to the press box this week. It's in, you know, it's my office is here and I got to, I got to see my player. And, and, and the PR guy would come to me and I would say, no, under no circumstances. He doesn't get a parking pass. He doesn't get a, you know, <laughs> A, a press box pass? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but teams do that. There are teams that do that, and uh, but but we didn't, and and the players understood. You know, as long as you're honest and upfront with people, they understand. Now we had there were a couple times where I had to go to a player and say, "Hey, I don't want the agent hanging around in the, in, in the tunnel after the game. You know, that's not his place. If he belongs, if you've given him a pass to the family room." Uh, I'm not thrilled about it, but that's your prerogative. But he belongs in the family room. Uh, if I see him in the in the, hanging out in the hallway outside the locker room, bye bye, baby. So you know, all you got to do is say it once or twice, and 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 they get it. Um, the agents, by the way, surface again at the Super Bowl. It's like a plague of locusts. They're all. <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> But 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 the fact of the matter is that that uh, that was our attitude with the players, and therefore, when a, when a, an agent called with renegotiation, and this speaks to Rick's point, here's the counter to Rick's point. My answer would always be, except in rare occasions like Marshall's situation. Look, we gave your player a signing bonus. You may not like the size of that signing bonus, but you agreed to it. And that is the guarantee that you get. So if I made a mistake in picking your player and he wasn't good enough and we cut him and we gave him a $600,000 signing bonus and he walks away with that $600,000, we didn't cheat you. We, we took a gamble on you. And if we win, great. And if we lost, then I pay the freight internally. I take the hit for that, publicly and internally. So it's a fair bargain. And uh, the fact that you may think he's outperformed his contract is nonsense. He signed the contract. He got a signing bonus for it. That's the guarantee. And we expect him to live up to the contract. Again, you only have one or two of those if you if you really stand firm, uh, it gets done. In rare cases, in rare cases with a with a player who's really very significant, you might say, and if you had a good relationship with the agent, um, and the agent was doing it without a lot of publicity and a lot of fanfare, you might say, um, all right, look, you, you got a smidgen of a point here. Let me think about maybe some unlikely-to-be-earned incentives that we can put in the contract that would give him a little more, a little more if he really performs above and beyond. Um, I might consider that. But once the player holds out, everything's off the table. Forget it. It's done. Either Either hold out, either stay out or come in. You got... One of two choices. Well, I'm 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 coming in based off of that. I'm not staying out. Yeah. So actually, the 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 thing that's truly amazing about this exchange we just had is that Bill and I formed our relationship 
because I was representing a player that was on his team. I was representing Mark Kelso. So that, you know, he, he was pretty strident there. And I think he said the things that he truly believes, obviously. But, you know, I think I, I, I handled that okay because 35 years later, I'm still representing Bill. But uh, Well, you, you were fortunate because Mark Kelso was an early son be, even before true. Bob Sanders. He was a member of the family, too. So <laughs> that's, that's true. That, that is absolutely true. And Coach Levy was his grandfather, so he kept inquiring as to whether or not we got Mark signed. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, I lucked out. I, 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 I lucked out there for sure. Um, but, you know, Bill, I, I, especially in the old, in what would be even for us the old days, uh, you know, when I went to the Players Association, the average salary in the league was $60,000. Um, and this, um, in, 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 in being serious for the moment, from my own point of view, this this inequity of obligation one way and the ability to get out from under the contract the other really did feel very egregious back then. Now it's millionaires and billionaires and guys are you know getting so much in signing bonuses that you know they they could be set for the rest of their lives. Uh, but back then, you know, when you had a guy who was who was coming out uh, and he was going to be making. Uh, Forty-five, fifty thousand dollars in the first year, sixty thousand dollars, and it was you know it was getting a ten thousand dollars signing bonus. Um, that uh, no matter what you did, you couldn't you 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 never had the chance for most guys, right? Because given a career length, to ever uh, be rewarded in the way that was completely commensurate, especially if you're one of the positions that was a little harder to uh, to uh, quantify. Uh, not a quarterback, not a receiver, uh, not a running back. Um, that it, it really did seem uh, truly reasonable to me to, to, to be able to go back at some point during the contract if it was earned. And I completely agree with you. You never do it in the press. You never do it in a way that's going to embarrass the other side. You, 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 and you and I never had to do this. But there were, there were times when I would, when I, over the years with different general managers where this did happen. And I think if you handle it in the right way, um, I was able to – uh, and the guy wanted to stay, and they really wanted him. That it that it was a win win, uh, not necessarily for a superstar or anything, but even even for a good player, a good solid starter roster, you know, player who who was contributing. Um, I, I think both sides did feel it was okay to renegotiate and walked away feeling like uh, they had won. Well, that that you know, it a lot depends on the individual case, but I was always. I was always conscious of the financial chemistry and and preached it long before it became uh, a talking point in, in, in today's media discussions of, of contracts and, and labor negotiations because in the end, the players know who's good and who, de- who deserves to be paid, and, and they know whether or not an organization – is going to be fair to them. Everybody doesn't get treated the same way, but everybody gets treated fairly. And if they believe that, then you're you're going a long way toward having harmony and 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 good morale. So, I was I was always one of the things I would always say to agents is, look, I know you're representing your your your, your player. And he's your primary interest, but I but I represent the owner and the other fifty-two players. 
uh, I've got an answer to them as to why I did this. And and so I'm not about to set a precedent uh, that that's going to come back and haunt me. If I if I do this for you, the line outside my door will be, uh, you know, 51 agents knocking on my door, trying to come in and get the same thing. So management has its point of view. Agents have their point of view. That's why you have negotiations. And also something I feel very strongly about is that the CBA, the Collective Bargaining Agreement, governs what can be paid in base salary, what can be paid under the salary cap now, what can be used and counted in, as, as bonus, what can be used and counted as incentives. All of that is agreed to by the union who represents every single player and the management council who represents every single owner and their employees, including their general managers. And, and, and nowadays, particularly with rookie signings, it, haven't, it hasn't happened this year because of coronavirus, but in years past, the agents take the position, hey, it, it, what they got in the collective bargaining is fine, but now I want mine. And my answer is no. No. That's what the CBA is for. If you don't like what the, the CBA uh, contains, go speak to the Players Association about it. You got a voice there. Don't come to me and say, well, I don't I didn't I didn't like this. This 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 particular clause is unfair. I want to be able to get a bonus and not have it likely to be earned. Well, sorry. See you in right. 10 years. Yep. <laughs> that, you know, that's true. And, and, and there was an evolution there uh, in the in the early collective bargaining agreements uh, going back into the 70s and 80s. That precision in terms of makeable and not make. Of course, of course, there was no cap even then. But, you know, even in the early days. So that. Yeah. I mean, the parameters are much more ascribed uh, as things um, evolved um, over time. And yeah. And I agree that that it's absurd for an agent to think that somehow, um, you know, he's exempt from the collective bargaining agreement. To me, the the uh, the skill of an agent is saying, OK, here here are the carved out parameters and I'm going to figure out a way uh, that the team can also live with where my guy maximizes any opportunity he has under the collective bargaining agreement because I'm doing this and I'm working with a Bill Polian. Let's say it's not a renegotiation. It's the original negotiation where I'm, what I'm asking for, he's going to be happy to pay if the guy – if it's bonus, uh, you know, an incentive – He'll be happy to pay it because it will be justified. Uh, but you, but you, yeah, you have to start out saying, you know, it's it's like in life, you can have a contract, but the law is the law, and, and the, you, you can't supervene the law of any jurisdiction uh, by a one-on-one negotiation between two parties. Same thing here. The collective bargaining agreement is the governing document, and you have to live within that. When you were negotiating contracts, um, the fact that let's say f- running backs have you know the shortest average career lifespan, um, h- how would you did you account for that w- when you were uh, signing or especially a free agent running back uh, making a decision about to want to re up with a running back? How did how did uh, the career longevity at that position or, or positions in general affect 
the commitment you were you you were willing to make probably more than anything in the signing bonus because it's amortized over the over the years of the contract. But you know, talk about that if you would. Well, nowadays the signing bonus is the guarantee, and it, it doesn't go away no matter what happens, unless there's a you know violation of the law or something like that. So, um, whatever you guarantee is you're stuck with, and, and it's going to accelerate if the player leaves the team, meaning that if if I sign a player to a five-year contract with a $5 million signing bonus, that counts under the salary cap as a million dollars per year. But in the second year, if I cut the player at the end of the second year, $3 million automatically goes on my salary cap the minute I cut him. So that's the... That's the gamble that you take when you enter into a long-term contract with a guaranteed signing bonus. Um, the, the actuarial numbers always come into play at, at virtually every position. And we had uh, really, really good numbers. And fortunately, because Mike Giddings is a friend and he, he still keeps me up to date on, on what the numbers are, and uh, and so those numbers always told us how far we could go, uh, how much we needed to expand, um, and and whether or not we we should we'd make a commitment to a player. So, for example, Peyton's last contract with the Colts, um, I think he was thirty three or thirty four. Um, and so the numbers told us that he would play well for four more years. He was an elite quarterback who played more with his head than his body. And so he'd play well for the numbers said for four more years. So we felt good about entering into a contract for him going forward. As it turns out, that contract uh, only, you know, only had one year on it and, there was some acceleration because of uh, the fact that uh, the Colts released him. But uh, the fact of the matter is he went on to play four more years in Denver and, and, and took them to uh, two Super Bowls. So um, the numbers were right. Same with receivers. Elite receivers play uh, up to age 36. Uh, Non-elite receivers begin to turn down right around age 31. Um, offensive linemen play well up to about age 32, and then it starts to climb. And we had those numbers for, for every position and for every grade of player within the position. Peyton Manning was a blue quarterback, elite. So there was a number for that. Marvin Harrison was a blue receiver, elite. There was a number for that. Uh, for an average receiver, a backup player, a smaller player, there would be a number for that. And and um, I always Jim Irsay had them. I had them. Uh, our, our our staff that dealt with contracts had them, and and we set the parameters accordingly. And and by the way, they're almost never wrong. So in terms of that with running backs, 
do you, how much do touches and carries factor into sort of that actuarial table as as opposed to years? Like, is there a certain number of carries where you go, hey, we're, this is we're going to go downhill and in all likelihood we're going to have injury or a complete drop off in productivity? Age wise, it's foolproof. Once you hit the wall, which is the age beyond which that they no longer perform at a peak level. Injury almost always intercedes. And then there's another modifier. If a player has an injury history throughout his career, then that's going to play a role. That's going to reduce the years that he will have at the end of his career where he still plays at his peak. Uh, So if you've had a, a running back, for example, that came in at 22, he should be hitting the wall right around age 28 or 29. But if he's had two significant knee injuries, his downturn is going to come probably at 25 or 26, depending on when the injuries occurred. So you have you 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 put a. You put a letter grade on the injuries. A means he's 100% clean. F means two major surgeries and and more than 12 games lost each, you know, in any given year to injury. If that's the case, then he's a bad risk, uh, you know, probably beyond age 26. I mean, which has to be why it's almost impossible for running backs, just as a position group, to get to that second contract. And then I'm assuming from you, from an executive standpoint, you have to think that's just going to be a position that's going to be constantly in flux and something that you're going to constantly need to evaluate from a draft perspective, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. The, uh, the, peop- the, the running backs that play nine, ten years are rarities. Um, and the running backs that play... Um, nine or ten years at, at highly productive levels, you know, almost don't exist. I mean, that's, that's, that's Barry Sanders, <laughs> you right. know, and, and yeah. maybe a couple of more, Walter Payton, you know, but very few others. So um, what you do is you, you figure that you're going to get six years out of an elite running back. Now, here's a – there's a the theory that's been evidence, advanced by people in the media. I haven't heard any football people advance it because the data tells you otherwise. But people in the media say, don't draft a running back in the first round. You can find one in the third or fourth round, and it'll be just as good. Well, the answer is when you, do the, you actually do the film work and the grading, they're not just as good. They're a notch or maybe two notches below. Secondly, if you draft Saquon Barkley or Edger and James or Marshall Falk in the first round, you're going to get first round Hall of Fame style performance from them. There's very likelihood that it's going to happen. And you'll get it probably for six, maybe seven years. Now, it so happens that if he's drafted in the top of the of the round, you got him by applying the franchise tag for seven years. If you've applied it twice, and you wouldn't you wouldn't invest any money up front other than the original signing bonus. So 
unlike trying to except if you run the uh, the pure Shanahan version of the West Coast offense. That's There's always an exception. But other than that, if you're looking for a running back and there's one available in the first round who's a quality talent, by all means, take him. And then five or six years later, do it again. You get better value mm-hmm. for that than you do trying to trying to find one in the second, third, fourth round. So in this case, um, to get back to our story, uh, tell us about when you, you realized that uh, despite uh, Rocky's best efforts and your best efforts, it just wasn't going to work out. Uh, the, the play was to trade Marshall. You know, when did that happen? And then how did that at that point affect your, your planning, draft planning and otherwise? Well, if we, if we were going to trade him, obviously we had to come up with a running back. And we had the, I guess it was the fourth pick, in the, maybe the third pick in the draft. It was real high, top ten pick, top five pick. And, um, and so now you say, well, okay, uh, are there running backs out there that are worthy of that pick? Well, the household name that was out there was Ricky Williams. So there's one. Um, I told you about the December draft board. Edger and James was sticking out on that board like a sore thumb. Um, there were a couple of others, and so we said, well, if we trade Marshall, um, we'll get a, a good return for him, and we can use that first pick on a running back and, 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 and just plug and play. Go ahead. Running backs, by the way, come in and play sooner than most every other position at a high level. About 65% of the time, they'll come in from college and play at a high level their first year. That's That's – that's you know that's rare in the National Football League, but that position is easily uh, adaptable. So um, the that was our that was our thinking, um, and and so we began to explore uh, possibilities sometime around the combine uh, of of trading of trading uh, Marshall, and actually. By the time we got to draft day, or the week before the draft, we thought we had a first rounder and 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 a little something extra for him. And then just right on the almost on the eve of the draft, um, that club backed out, and and we were back out on the market again. So um, in your mind, and let's just stick with running back here, uh, you know, because of the the, the career length. Uh, because generally there's so few running backs that have ever been great at one team and then great for a second team. Um, how were you? How were you going about making that calculation as to? Uh, and of course, the market controls in the end. But you know, if you were setting a, a value on that in your own mind, going out into the market, uh, so you're therefore you're having to put yourselves uh, in the shoes of the 31 other GMs. Um, how do you do that? And what did you think? Uh, in in you in know if the world works works the way it was supposed to, what is the value of a of a great running back like Marshall Falk going on to play for his second team at that you know prospectively? Well, a great running back who had great avoid, great hands, didn't take a lot of blows, didn't block, and wouldn't be asked to, uh, you know, no injuries to speak of. Uh, I think he might have had a little ankle. The year before we got there, I'm not certain that I don't remember that right now, but no injuries to speak of. 
So you would say, you know, at, le- at least the one and, and maybe something extra. So that's what we asked for. You know, the old story, if you don't ask, you don't get. You try to make a market. And, uh, and, and if the market develops, then uh, you're okay. If it doesn't develop, then you, you probably have to lower the price at some point. And that's exactly what happened with us. We had a team that committed to, the, to, to pay the one and, and, a, and a little sweetener. And, uh, and then just as we were about to consummate the deal, they backed out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were doing it the other way, Bill, if you, if you were one of the 31 uh, and a, a, a guy like Marshall Falk uh, were out there in the bill, would you be willing to pay a one plus? Uh, it would depend on, uh, on, on what the fit was in the offense. Uh, and, uh, and you know, what we could, what we could glean about the person. Um, but assuming that both were viable, then yeah, I think so. But depending on now you say, okay, do I give up a one to get Marshall Falk or do I, is there something in the draft that I can use my one for? If I don't have a one, then and I need a running back very badly, and I and I I don't have that currency to get one in the first round, and there's nobody in the second or third that I'm really uh, sold on. Uh, I might very well make the move. Let me ask you because occasionally we engage on the podcast here in what I guess I would call speculative history. Just and uh, so this is a brief one. Uh, had things from a cap standpoint and so on been different, and had you been able to keep Marshall, how, tell me about what would have happened in terms of your view of how to build out the team, keeping Marshall Falk and Peyton Manning and Reggie and uh, Marv, uh, Marvin. You know, Where would you have gone then in terms of making the Colts a better team in the next couple of years if you'd been able to keep all that in place? Uh, I I can't say. I mean, I, I I'm not one that I'm not one that dwells on what might have been. You know, old story: ifs and buts were candy and nuts. We'd all have a merry Christmas or a wild party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you can't you can't deal in ifs and buts. I mean, you have to deal with the hand you you're dealt and 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 just go. Uh, and that's especially true in football because in the winking of an eye. The best laid plans of mice and men can go awry because of injury. And Peyton's injury and the subsequent fallout from that is perfect evidence of it. So, you know, I, I, Jim, Jim, Jim Finks always used to say, build with an eye toward the future, but don't, don't always be looking down the road. <laughs> <laughs> one of the many great fixisms. Hey, Scott, just note, note, note to you and me, no more speculative history questions. <laughs> hey, man, you, you did it this time. I've learned for the last four or five weeks. I'm no longer asking them again. But so 
One thing I did want to know, I know that obviously we talked about a little bit in the sort of contract negotiation portion, but in terms of finding a market or developing a market for a player, can the agent be helpful? Can you enroll the agent? Like, could you enroll Rocky in the process of saying, hey, let's find a landing spot, potentially get a better deal and sort of pump up the market? Or is that sort of not happening? I would lean toward not happening unless it were an extraordinary, extraordinary circumstance. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's my job to make trades. It's my job to make trades, not the agent's job. Right. right. I agree. I agree. A- age, agents would lie to players and say they could affect things like that, including where they're going to get drafted. But the team makes all those. Share decisions. a funny story with you that, that uh, I, I also used to tell players from time to time, uh, especially when I spoke to rookies before the draft when they were at the combine. So, you know, all the agents that you've talked to are going to tell you that they can get you drafted around higher than some publication has you ranked. And they're going to tell you that they can get you drafted by such and such a team. And so I want you to think about this. I have four children that I have to clothe, feed, educate, and uh, and hopefully they'll have grandchildren that, that I'd like to do the same thing for. Um, do you think I would put their future in the hands of an agent and take his recommendation over my scouts, over my coaches, over my own eyes? And they'd all kind of look and shake their heads. Of course not. So the answer is when they tell you that, it's baloney. We're going to make the choice that's right for us, not the one they want us to make. And and I will tell you that I completely agree with that. In fact, and I know I actually lost guys I might have been able to get to represent, but I would say that exact same thing. I guess I'd say, you know, there were only 32 people in the world who could determine uh, where you were going to be drafted. And those were NFL owners and no agents, one of those. So, you know, that's just uh, BS if they tell you they can affect that. So uh, but but a lot of, you know, Bill, as you and I know, you could tell that to the players, you could preach it to them, but they don't they don't always believe you. They believe the guy who tells them, you know, you know, I'm going to make you into a second round draft pick. And then I said, OK, well, how about if I make you president and an astronaut? You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, well, hey, if we've learned anything in the world, that's possible today. Well, ultimately, you would trade Marshall Falk uh, on the day we all have to pay the piper, April 15th, to the St. Louis Rams for a second and a fifth uh, in the upcoming 1999 draft. And the New York Times headline, very interesting, said the Indianapolis Colts traded running back Marshall Falk to St. Louis yesterday, clearing the way for the Colts to go after Heisman Trophy winner Ricky Williams with the fourth pick in tomorrow's draft. But... In today's episode, that's just going to be an exciting cliffhanger that will take you into the next episode, because now it's time for our Audible. And so our first Audible today is actually a fan question. Rick, I think you got this one. I do. Now, I, let me apologize in advance if I butcher your name. It's, it's, it's a beautiful name, but I don't know if I'm saying it or not correctly. Uh, I, I believe it's Azlariel. Azlariel. Yeah. Or as a real, lots of consternation between me and Rick before the pod today. So we take full responsibility. <laughs> All right, Bill. So with the cancellation uh, or pushing back of the, the CFB seasons for the Big Ten and the Pac-12, 
Uh, how, how much does that affect CFB scouting? And what specific effects uh, do you think it could have, say, per, perhaps even uh, pushing a first, uh, who would otherwise be a first rounder, uh, into the second round, uh, ha, you know, if somebody missed this season? Um, I, I don't think that specific uh, situation will manifest itself. Um, first of all, I think the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are going to try to play even if it's a truncated season during the winter. Uh, they're working on plans for that right now, and I've talked to coaches and, and athletic directors and assistant ADs, all of whom uh, you know, are diligently working on that. So there's going to be some form of college football for those two conferences this spring, winter and spring. Um, God willing, you know, the, the virus is in charge, as Dr. Fauci has famously said, and we're just reacting to it. So let's hope that there's an opportunity to, to, to play. If there is, uh, you know, a lot of the big-name players won't play. The guys who are assured first-round draft choices won't play. Trevor Lawrence, as an example, um, might not. There'll be a significant number who don't. But you've already got enough film on them. And if that happens, let's just say that that the spring college football season went until Memorial Day. That's if all Power Five conferences stopped and played again in the spring. Um, you'll have the combine and the draft a little bit later. That's all. The NFL is not going to not going to just say, "Oh no, we're going to draft on April twentieth." while college football is still going on, although we did, by the way, in the old days. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, it, that, that, that's not going to happen. So they'll move everything if they have to move it. Secondly, uh, you will have the combine and you will have the physicals and you'll have the measurables and, and the colleges themselves – in my talks with numerous people at the college level, understand that they're going to have to end their season at a point in the spring where the players get some respite. So many of them, I think correctly, are viewing it as an extended spring practice, which they do anyway. So guys will work out for the NFL. They'll, they'll have their physicals. Uh, maybe you won't have the 30 visits, but so what? I mean, that's not the end of the world. Uh, y- you can get it done. We didn't have them this year. So um, it won't have the effect of knocking first-rounders into the second round. What it will do is probably make, as it has happened this year, the signing of collegiate free agents and the drafting of sixth and seventh rounders a little more inexact as it than it normally is Uh, but with a 90-man roster almost everyone who who's good enough to make it to a camp gets there and so uh, you know is it ideal no but lord knows we don't live in an ideal world now far from it so uh, we'll adapt, and the NFL will adapt, and everybody will be fine. Hope that gives you the answer you needed, Azariel. 
Yeah, and it could it could work the other way. It could give opportunities for guys, you know, if there if there's less football and less star players play, it could help move people up draft boards who potentially you weren't you weren't looking at. So it could have the opposite impact. You never know. All right. Well, I know that there was a lot of discussion about this one uh, before the pod, and I know Rick is going to have very definitive feelings on it as well. But uh, this one's mine. Where does Marshall Falk rank as the greatest receiving back of all time? Is he the greatest receiving back of all time? And if not, who is? Well, um, well, first of all, my answer to all those questions is he's got a gold jacket. So by definition, he's in the conversation. So now define receiving back. And can you define it properly through the various iterations, through the various generations of, of, of pro football? Was Walter Payton for example, a receiving back. Uh, in those days, I, I kind of would think that. Gail Sayers didn't do much of it, but uh, he's about, you know, he's in the conversation for the best of all time. Marshall's in there. I, I, don't, know how you, I don't know how you separate it. And I was a voter, having said that, I was a voter for both the top 100 and for the uh, 20-man Centennial Hall of Fame cl- class, and we did not, and, and, and Bill Belichick and Ozzie Newsom and other really smart football people were part of that, both panels. We didn't try to separate it, and we watched a lot of film. So I don't know how you separate them. You know, the bottom, you can do it statistically, but that's not a, a true measurement. So... If you got a gold jacket to me, that's good enough. You're an all-time great. That works for me, Rick. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I, you know, it's it, to me, it's a tough thing anyway. I mean, when when you break out that category, uh, if he is, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, would it, aren't Jim Brown, Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, Emmett Smith still the best of all time? I mean, does it really matter? You know how they got their yards? I mean, they're they're they're, they're moving their team down the field. Uh, so, uh, I think he was, you know, I think he was terrific at doing that. Uh, but you know, again, uh, I don't know that some of those other backs, if the scheme had required that couldn't have done it too. I mean, I, I don't think there was anything in all the sports that Jim Brown couldn't have done better than anybody else. Probably true. Maybe kick. I don't know if he was a strong kicker, but he probably was actually, he was a pretty good kicker <laughs> punter anyway. Well, see, there you go. I'll share one with you. Here's a Jim Brown story. Here's a Jim Brown story a lot of people haven't heard. Uh, There's a monthly luncheon of Hall of Famers. Uh, It's kind of the old guys luncheon uh, where we we get together uh, via Zoom and and talk with people at the hall and just and answer questions and share stories. And so one particular topic was who was the best athlete that you ever saw? Who, who played another sport. And so there were all kinds of answers, you know, guys that played against Jim Brown, guys that played against Gail Sayers. Um, uh, and, and so at the end of the conversation, I said, 
somebody who can look this up, correct me if I'm wrong, but I honestly believe that Jim Brown might be the greatest of all time because he was an All-American football player. Uh, he is considered, you know, among the top two or three backs ever to play in the history of the National Football League. And as far as I know, he's still considered the greatest lacrosse player of all time. But I saw him play basketball for Syracuse, I believe, in the 1956 or 55 holiday festival in Madison Square Garden. And I'm wondering if that was an optical illusion. I'm just imagining that. And someone, I can't recall who was on a call, jumped in and said, you're exactly right. He played basketball for Syracuse as a senior, I guess. (laughs) And he was a starter and a terrific rebounder. And I actually believe, Bill, he also ran track for Syracuse. He did. That's correct. He did. So that, so that was four sports. And, you know, yes, Bo knows it. Bo knows what Bo's doing. But this is four sports. So pretty good. All right, gang. Well, that is the show for today. As always, if you have questions for the Audible, hit us up on social media on Twitter at IFBillPolian, and we will be sure to get to them. Thanks again, guys. And we're very excited about next week's show where we dive into the second half of this story and get into the permutations at the top of the 1999 NFL draft. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Everybody, be well. Stay safe. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.